This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 54 and we're recording on November 1st. I'm Amanda Nelson and I'm here with Jen Northington and we are coming to you from Book Riot. Hello. Welcome. Welcome to our show. Welcome to <laughs> Tuesday, except it's Thursday when you're listening yeah. to this. So. Well, it's Tuesday right now, so that's fine. It's all good. <laughs> um, um, we are like 11 days from Book Riot Live. I know. I can't <laughs> How you handle doing? it. <laughs> are, you, are you like, do you take vacation like immediately after? I don't remember from when. I can't because I have to run a thousand reports and update mm. six million spreadsheets, but um, <laughs> I'll be taking a couple of vacation days in, in the following weeks for sure uh because yeah right now it's just all the time book riot live all the time we're stuffing the welcome totes this weekend that's Woo-hoo! gonna be a blast um i like almost got buried in an avalanche of beanbag chairs in the storage unit last <laughs> week so you know um, welcome to behind the scenes <laughs> welcome to behind the scenes of book riot live it's it's crazy we have spreadsheets and beanbag chairs <laughs> um you should come join us if you don't already have your ticket you still have time to get one or you can just show up on the day and get one honestly like if you live in the area just come by come by and hang out with us it's going to be so much fun uh, but if you get your ticket ahead of time you can use our discount code which is jazz hands i'm making them right now you can't see me but you have to believe me um so yes if you go to bookriotlive.com and then hit the register button and use the code jazz hands you will get 20 dollars off your weekend pass or 10 bucks off your day pass and you should definitely come hang out with us I won't talk about spreadsheets once during the actual thing, I promise. (laughs) (laughs) Well, not to you. No, that's right. (laughs) I will get spreadsheets, which will be awesome because I really like them. Yeah. Okay. So, as I mentioned, this is a show for personalized reading recommendations. So, how it works is you send us your recommendation requests. You can email them to us, getbooked at bookriot.com, or you can drop them in the form at the bottom of the show notes um, for every episode on the site. And let's see what else. Oh, if it's a time sensitive question, like you need it sooner rather than later or by a particular time, please do put that in the subject line of your email or at the very top of your request. If you use the form. Um, also we are emailing uh, a couple of people back now. If you're, if you ask a question that we've answered already in our 54 shows, um, then we will probably email you the response. So we don't repeat the question or so you don't, you know, have to wait forever. Um, so that's how it works. So so we're going to read our first question, do our first sponsor, and then go, go, go. So, All right. <laughs> the first question is from Monica. It says, I would like to try out a steampunk novel. I would like something accessible, perhaps a little more realistic than fantastical, and I love YA. It is unlikely that I will be reading much in this genre in the future, so if you could recommend a favorite for me to explore steampunk, I would be grateful. I'm in my 50s and do not usually enjoy books that are more than about 350 pages. Okay, so before we give you our steampunk recommendations, we're going to talk about our first sponsor, which is Madison Reed. I have to say that if I was not so committed to my rainbow hair colors at this <laughs> point in time, I would be checking them out. I was a big user of drugstore, like, home hair dye products for most of my 20s. Sometimes I was a redhead, sometimes I would go, like, dark brunette, because I'm, like, a mid-brown, which is so boring. Mm-hmm. Like, there's nothing interesting about mid-brown to me. So <laughs> I was always messing with it. Um, and what makes Madison Reed different is that they have uh, their, you know, free of ammonia and parabens and all of the things that you do not want to be putting in your hair, uh, which is hard to find. Um, and they also, they do use things like keratin and argan oil, which is my best friend, um, and things like that to make sure that your hair, after you've dyed it, comes out looking excellent. They also uh, promise 100% great coverage, if that is a thing that you care about. And um, my favorite part of their site is that there's this perfect shade matcher quiz thing. So you like go through all of these questions about, you know, what shades you're looking for, where you're starting from, what kind of tones you want in your hair, and then it'll recommend a color for you. So if you go to madison-reed.com and uh, enter the code booked, B-O-O-K-E-D, during checkout, you will get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit. So it's a good way to try out a new brand uh, if 
you are looking to change up your hair color. So again, that's madison-reed.com and use code booked, B-O-O-K-E-D, to get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit. All right. Okay. <laughs> so the question was for sl- more realistic than fantastical steampunk with a preference for less than 350 pages. I'm just going to say right now I failed. That <laughs> My books are longer than that, but they're really good. I really like them. So <laughs> I'm going to recommend them anyway, and I'm going to keep talking because I'm already talking. Uh, so my very first pick for you is one of my favorite books in this genre. It's called The Half-Made World by Felix Gilman, and it is a reimagining of the American West, but with steampunk. <laughs> Which is exciting. Um, if you're not familiar, steampunk is basically like just the idea that what if in during the Industrial Revolution, steam was the primary, steam had remained the primary source of energy for machines. And so in a steampunk world, like everything is powered by steam. Makes perfect sense, right? Okay. So in, and in Half Made World, there's, I mean, it's not 100% realistic. I don't know. I think it's kind of, unless you're reading William Gibson, like there's not a ton of super hard steampunk, I guess. But anyway, this is great. Um, In the Western Frontier, there are these sort of two rival factions. One is called the Line, which uh, is the railroad. And they are sort of taking over with their giant, possibly possessed uh, (laughs) steam engine uh, railroad cars. And then there's this other cult of the gun, uh, which are sort of have a reign of terror over everyone. So, and their guns are probably possessed. Everybody's, all machines are possessed in this world. Uh, And um, they are sort of at war with themselves. Everybody else is sort of caught in the crossfire. And there was this one sort of, you know, standout group called the Red Republic that were battling both of them, um, but they have kind of disappeared and, you know, perhaps the world is just going to be worse forever. Uh, And then farther to the west is the uncharted territory where strange things come from. So there's a lot going on. It's actually the first in a series. I feel like Gilman did an amazing job of creating really compelling characters. Uh, It's a really atmospheric book, like you can kind of taste the dust out in the desert and, you know, smell the smoke of the steam engines. And it's very compelling and absorbing. I really enjoyed it. Uh, so that is The Half-Made World by Felix Gilman. It is more than 350 pages. Sorry. Yeah, both of mine are also. So um, <laughs> I, I apologize. There were shorter ones, but they had vampires. And it doesn't sound like <laughs> I was interested in that. So I don't know. Well, one of mine has zombies in it. So maybe oh, yeah, I just, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, okay. So my first, uh, my first pick for you is Everfair by Nisi Shaw. Who will be at Book Ride Live? Hard cosign. Um, this book is yes. so good. And she'll also, she'll be on my panel. I'm doing a panel about alternate history yes. or like writing history and it's going to be really great. Anyway, um, so I picked this one because it, you asked for more realistic and this is also historical uh, fiction. So it, like alternate history. So it is based in like real things that happen. And then she just qu- like asks the question of like, what had ha- what would have happened in this situation if X people had discovered steam power sooner than they did. So the conceit is that this is the Belgian Congo. So it's like a Victorian era um, kind of. And uh, I don't know how familiar you are with that history, but uh, the Belgian king, uh, Leopold, uh, perpetrated, I mean, like, this is like our human rights disaster. Like, when, I mean, of course, most of most all of colonialism is a human rights disaster, but the Belgian Congo was like especially violent and gnarly and awful. And so uh, Shaw gives the native people of the Congo um, steam power to see, like, to experiment with this thought process of how, would they have fared better with it. Um, so she brings together this like very motley crew of like British socialists and American missionaries and uh, like just weird political revolutionaries and all of them come together to purchase a tract of land that they call, that they name Everfair and set aside as like a utopia for people who are escaping uh, Leopold or other uh, native Africans who are being mistreated around the world. And so they set up this kind of utopia and then you're following the story from various, like tons of different characters' perspectives um, over time uh, to see how the experiment goes, basically. And she spans, like every chapter, it's so interesting, every chapter of this book is super short, like maybe three or four pages, and it jumps several months and often several years. So you're spanning like, 
this huge amount of time within the space of the book. Um, and what she does with the steam technology is really interesting. The, the, the um, And she's also includes a lot of characters from not just marginalized groups in fiction in general, but like groups from, from history that you don't really hear a lot of about like like Chinese immigrants into the Belgian Congo at the time and like what they went through uh, dealing with Leopold and colonialism. Anyway, it's just a really fascinating steampunk reimagining of a particular era of history um, that is awesome. So that's Everfair by Nisi Shaw. Yeah, it's only 380 pages, so like I'm close. I right. Close. <laughs> <laughs> All of mine were under 500, so. Okay. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Everfair is so good. Uh, okay, my second pick for you is Angel Maker by Nick Harkaway, which I feel like I haven't talked about in a minute. Um, it's great. So it's got two timelines. The first is a present day sort of gangster conceit, if you will, about a man named Joe Spork who comes from a family of con artists but is really just trying to like have a normal life uh, and get sucked into all of this craziness. And then there's a second timeline uh, that is based in the... Oh, during the Cold War, right? Am I right about that? Anyway, it's like... Mm-hmm. It's slightly oldie time. Um, and, yeah, Cold War. And it, it follows the adventures of a super spy named Edie Bannister, who I was for Halloween one year, uh, for the record. And um, and then they their timelines kind of meet up in the present day. And there's all of these hijinks and battles and crazy team-ups and explosions and just lots and lots of action. Uh, I do think that having it rooted in the present day was a really interesting option um and the technology is so cool like the submarine in this book oh my gosh i have like feelings about it um (laughs) and so yes so and there's a lot of clockwork which is like one of those kind of steampunky conceits like lots of gears and Mm -hmm. uh weird tech that is not exactly you know high tech as it were uh and i think it's just i think it's a really fun read it's really enjoyable uh there are serious parts but there's also a lot of fun so it seems to me that it's a nice, gentle intro into some of those tropes. So that is Angel Maker by Nick Harkaway. Okay, my second pick is Bone Shaker by Cherry Priest. Um, and this is the first in a very long series. I think there are five or six books. Um, and it's I picked this one because it's like a very um, ideal, I don't know, uh, archetypal? I can't find the word. Like, a really correct representation of the steampunk <laughs> genre. Yeah, I feel like that's legit. <laughs> yeah, okay, thank you. Like, I can't, the word, I don't know what I'm, like, reaching for here, but you know what I'm saying. Anyway, so it takes place uh, on the West Coast, which is cool, like, in Seattle, and I hadn't read a steampunky book that took place in Seattle, but anyway, uh, like, in the early kind of days of the Civil War, and it's, the idea is that, like, it's right around the gold rush, and so people are coming from everywhere to the Pacific Northwest looking for gold. And so Russia hires an inventor to create a machine that will be able to drill through the ice uh, layers in Alaska looking for gold in like Russia's attempt to compete. So they hire an inventor named Leviticus Blue to do it. And Dr. Blue creates this, what's uh, ostensibly known as uh, the bone shaker. This is the machine that he invents. He And then there's a test run for the bone shaker in Seattle. It goes terribly wrong. It destroys like all, most of downtown Seattle, kills dozens of people and unearths this uh, vein of, of gas, of subterranean gas that basically turns people who breathe it. It kills them, and then it turns them into zombies. So you ask for realistic, this is not so much there are zombies. Sorry. But it's really awesome and fun. Um, And so this happens, like, kind of before the book opens. And you don't know at the beginning if Dr. Blue did this on purpose, like... Maybe he destroyed a couple of downtown city blocks where several banks were located so that he could go in behind the banks and rob them, or if it was an accident or what. Um, so then you jump forward, as like uh, almost, I think, 15 years, and the uh, people who live there in Seattle have vacated the city. They've built a huge wall to enclose the gas um, around it, what used to be downtown. And then you are following Dr. Blue's widow. Her name is Briar, and their son, who is now a teenager. Um they have a really bad reputation. Obviously, nobody wants to associate with them because their patriarch destroyed their city for reasons that were probably questionable. And so Ezekiel decides he's going to um, 
clear his father's name and he goes under the wall into the city where there are zombies and airships manned by pirates and like lots of underground criminal overlords and all of this and everybody's like armed with really gnarly steampunk weapons and then of course Briar goes in after them to save him so this is the idea behind this uh, first book and to like solve the mystery of what actually happened with the first Bone Shaker. Um, so really, I mean, it's got air pirates. I don't know what else you want. <laughs> so that's Bone Shaker by Cherry Priest. So much fun. It's real good. Okay. Um, question two. This is from Jamie. Um, she says, for 2017, my reading goal is going to be to read mostly internationally or if authors in the U.S., only diverse authors. Being a straight white American female, I want to go uh, completely outside of my personal experience for a while, and books are the best way I've found to do that. Excuse me. One category I want to read but have no idea where to start is Native American authors. I would appreciate both fiction and nonfiction. The only authors I know of off the top of my head are Sherman Alexie and Louise Erdrich. Can you point me towards some other good history and fiction so I can learn more about the indigenous people of North America? Sure. Um, I have two picks and a website for you. So I guess I'll just dive. <laughs> two picks and a website. <laughs> yeah. I'll dive into my, it's, I guess it's better than two picks and a rant. I don't know. Um, which is what I had last time, if I remember correctly. Uh, my first pick for you is nonfiction. It's an autobiography. It's called Lakota Woman by Mary Crow Dog, written with Richard Erdos. Um, and she, Mary grew up in like a one room cabin on a reservation in South Dakota and she became part of the movement of tribal pride uh, and the organization AIM in the 60s and 70s and was part of uh, their, like, I don't know if you learned about this or not. I, I, it's hard to know, like, what people have learned about in school or not, because a lot of the stuff that you learn about, you know, First Nations folks is just all frontiersy and historical. But there's a lot of stuff that has happened more recently than that. So in the 60s and 70s, there was this huge political movement among Native American tribes in America, and she was involved in a lot of really intense moments in it. So what you get when you read her autobiography is a look sort of behind the scenes at um, what was happening, uh, you know, how the people who were involved got involved, and also just a really amazing photo, or not photo, like a really amazing portrait is the word I want, of uh, what it was like to grow up, uh, you know, during this time and to be on a reservation. And she's half white, so there's a lot of issues for her there as well. Um, It's just, and it's really beautifully told. The conversation, or the style is very conversational, Uh, It does jump around a little bit, which is kind of what I would expect from a conversational style autobiography. But um, I did notice in some of the reviews that some people had a hard time following it. But I think it's I think it's on the whole, I think it's a really moving, very engrossing story. Um, I didn't have any trouble with the style. I'm just mentioning it in case that's a thing that is hard for you. And, yeah, it's just, I mean, it's a hard read, though. Some really awful things happened in her life, and she experienced, you know, poverty and violence, uh, personally and politically. Uh, So it's it's not an easy read, but I think it's a super important one. I think there was actually a movie made out of this, but I haven't seen it, so I cannot speak to that. Uh, So that is Lakota Woman by Mary Crow Dog. Okay, my first pick is Ceremony by Leslie Marmon Silko, which is uh, kind of, I guess at this point, considered almost like a classic of Native American literature. And this is a novel. Uh, It's about a young guy named Tayo who... Uh, it takes place during World War II and, like, immediately after World War II. Um, so he goes off to fight in the Pacific theater of World War II. He's taken prisoner by the Japanese and experiences, you know the horrors of being a prisoner of war and also generally just like the horrors of war in general. Um, And he returns home, which his home is a Laguna Pueblo reservation. Um, He comes home after spending some time in a hospital for his PTSD, uh, which is very, very severe. Um, And the doctors determine while he's in the hospital that he's fit to leave, which is incorrect, but whatever. So they send him home. um, And he has a lot of trouble adjusting. There are other soldiers who are coming home from his reservation who kind of deal with their trauma um, by, you know, drinking a lot or getting into fights that make no sense um, or maybe both at the same time. And he kind of doesn't want to go down that road, even though he realizes that his life is falling apart. He's not adjusting well at all um so his like quest kind of for a way to handle what happened to him during the war leads him back into the ceremonial um 
traditions of his people, so which he was not like super interested in before he left. Um, so it's, you know, he goes off, he like has to leave and go fight a war and fly across the world to come home and rediscover the roots of his people. Um, so it's, you know, there's all, I mean, I don't want to say it's like super educational because, hmm, but it is, <laughs> it is like you, you learn so much. I'm actually um, almost, I'm reading it right now and I'm like almost done with it. And it's super hard. And um, I don't know how, I mean, it's not, I'm trying to figure out how to word like why it's difficult to read. It's not that it's like, Violent though it is because there are scenes from war, but like the way she writes his pain is like, it's just so heartbreaking. And the way that she writes his, um, like his desperation to find peace and the things that he has to go through to get there are, they're just tough. It's tough, but it's a, it's a really important and so well-written, like poetic. Her, her words are amazing uh, kind of book. So yeah. So that's Ceremony by Leslie Marmon Silko. <laughs> yeah. My second pick is sort of an unintentional companion to that one. Uh, it is Housemaid of Dawn by N. Scott Mamaday. And it is also about a man who fights in World War II and then comes home and is having a really hard time fitting back in. Um, but it's different in a few ways. Uh, one is that the main character, Abel, um, was born into the traditions uh of his tribe and was so you get all of these snapshots of him growing up and like participating in the ritual ceremonies and all of these things um and then you know he you kind of jump forward into his return and yeah he's just drunk all the time he's not adjusting well he doesn't know how to express himself in basically any real way uh so that means that he lashes out uh when his emotions hit the boiling point um and it's a really intense read. I'm re- I'm also reading this one right now, and it is very episodic, and it's not defined by chapters either. So you'll get uh, this beautiful, you know, sort of childhood memory, and then you'll be in the present, and he's like drunk and you know trying to find work, and then it kind of jumps to. It's very organic, I guess, is the thing I want to say. Like the writing kind of meanders. Um, I wouldn't call it stream of consciousness, but it's not. Linear. And so it is, you really have to read it slowly and pay attention. But that is not a hardship because Mama Day is an amazing writer. His prose is gorgeous. Uh, I found out as I was reading it that this book was a Pulitzer Prize winner, and I can really see why. I mean, it's just, it's really intense. It's a really interesting story, and his writing is just kind of, I, I haven't read a lot like it. So uh, it's not an easy one uh, for many reasons, um, but I'm finding it very, very worthwhile. So that is House Made of Dawn by N. Scott Mamaday. Oh, and I just want to say that the site I was going to tell you about is if you go to firstnations.org slash books, they have a huge recommended reading list uh, with a lot of interesting titles on there that include, you know, ones we're talking about and like Sherman Alexie and Louis Eldridge, but a ton more that are both fiction and nonfiction. So I'll leave that link in the show notes, but it's firstnations.org slash books. Okay, my second book is a memoir. It's called One Native Life by Richard Wagamese, and he's actually um, Canadian, so I don't know. Well, you said North America, so I feel like it's fine. Um, So he is um, writing this memoir about his kind of childhood and coming-of-age stuff. So his parents were residential school survivors, which if you're familiar at all with Canadian history and Canadian relations to their First Nations people, um, it's very uh, horrible, as ours is also. Um, And residential school children were often, like, taken from their families and forced to assimilate. And it's just, anyway, that's like a whole historical thing you can go research um, on your own. So his parents were survivors of the residential schools. And the residential school experience really broke them of their ability to um, be a Adults make their own decisions. They lost all sense of themselves, all sense of their identity. Um, and so they had, once they had children, they were unable to care for them. So Richard and his uh, siblings were taken from their parents and they spent time in foster homes for several years before he was finally adopted eventually um, by a white family. He leaves, he runs away um, and tries to survive on his own. But, you know, he doesn't have uh, an education. He's a First Nations guy Canada so the racism that he had to face was really difficult eventually he rediscovers like he finds his brother um and tries to make peace with his family tries to make peace with his roots um and the book itself is it's written in a really interesting 
way. Like the, the chapters are very short. They're more like vignettes, I guess, like two or three pages. Um, and he writes poetry. Like, like they're, if you like, I'm trying to think of a, um, what's that Sarah Mangusso thing about the, the book about the diary? Oh. Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't know what it's called though. Yeah, I can't remember. Anyway, uh, <laughs> if you like those sort of like very self-reflective memoirs or books that are, are um, you know, like vignettes. And I, I can't, th- there's one example that it's by Sarah Mangoso and it's like her diary that she kept throughout her life that she stops uh, keeping when she has a child. I can't remember the name of it. But Ongoingness. It's the same, yes, Ongoingness. thank you. Yeah, I had it's to Google the same, it. The same sort of thing where like she's, uh, uh, Wagamese is taking like an episode from his childhood or from growing up and then like reflecting on it for a couple hundred words and then moving on to a new one. So it is uh, tough. He experiences a lot of physical violence and emotional pain and um, all of that. And then he comes to grips with his Ojibwe um heritage and that's uh, really lovely to read about so it's it's tough but it's you know you asked for fiction and nonfiction, so i gave you one of each so yay so that's one native life by richard wakamese all right question three is from nanditha my sister is going on a trip to new zealand in december and has a birthday coming up in november so i was hoping to get her a few books at new zealand can you recommend some fiction or nonfiction? she reads everything Ugh, i love people who read everything <laughs> <laughs> Uh, my first pick for this question is The Bone People by Carrie Holm. Uh, it is a novel. It is set in, um, in like a tower uh, in the New Zealand sea where a woman named Carolyn Holmes, who is part Maori and part European, much like the author, uh, is an artist. And she is sort of in this exile from her family, uh, sort of self-imposed. She's, you know, she wants to be alone and she's struggling with her art and just struggling with who she is and then one night uh, a boy tries to steal from her um, and she comes to find out that this young boy is uh uh, the foster son of a man named Joe, who he rescued from a shipwreck, um, and who is like a very weird parental figure. Uh, so she gets involved in their lives, and um, there's a lot going on in this book. It's a mystery, there's a love story, there's all of this stuff about uh, the sort of, you know, modern uh, interconnection and problems thereof between Maori and European uh, peoples in New Zealand. And so I think it's a, it's just, A, it's just a great novel. Uh, I hand-sold this book a ton back when I was a bookseller. And um, B, I think it presents an interesting look at, you know, sort of the tensions in modern-day New Zealand culture. So that is The Bone People by Carrie Holm. Okay, my first pick is The Luminaries by Eleanor Catton. Um, Caton? Catton. Uh, which I'm pretty sure won the Booker. Um, yeah. A couple of years ago, yeah, in 2013. So this is such a, it's a huge, big chunkster, like, not exaggerating, eight or 900 pages. And it's very Victorian in feel. It takes place in the mid-1800s. The main character, well, ish, one of the main characters' names is uh, Walter. And he has traveled to New Zealand to, like, make his fortune, because it's the middle of the gold rush. And he uh, he um, enters a hotel called The Crown and stumbles into this, like, gathering of 12 dudes who live in town who are discussing a mystery. Um, and so that's, like, a very high-level overview of this 900-page book. Um, but it's, in a, it's a very, like, kind of Dickensian, Wilkie Collins sort of thing, where you are trying to... Th- solve a mystery there may or may not be like a ghost involved there's definitely pirates and a lot of opium um like there's the prostitute with the heart of gold who everyone's in love with and um people like seeking their fortunes and like the vagaries of uh the gold rush and all of that sort of thing and it's structured in a really interesting way like the longest chapter is the first one and then they get progressively shorter um as you go along in the same as like mimicking kind of like how the moon wanes which was really interesting and every character represents a different astro astrology not astronomy astrological sign I always get those two mixed up um so if you know anything about astrology um I think you would get like a little bit extra out of the book I do not but it was still fine <laughs> I think you'll, you'll get like more out of it um so it's actually you know for being such a huge Victorian thing um it's a page turner because you're like trying to find out what connects these 12 well plus 13 plus the new kid um what connects all of these people and what's at the center of like this mystery that you 
are tossed into in the beginning of the book. So that's The Luminaries by Eleanor Catton. All right. My second pick for you is nonfiction. And the title is Come on Shore and We Will Kill You and Eat You All. Uh, <laughs> the author is Christina Thompson. What? <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's like, it's one of those titles where you're like, um, really? Okay. But so I'm, I'm reading this now and I'm really enjoying it. It's a weird book. So it is nonfiction. And the uh, the author slash narrator is a woman who is obsessed with the uh, history of the Pacific, particularly like the European expansion into the Pacific. So she has been in Australia. When the book picks up, she's been in Australia doing her research. And she goes on a trip to New Zealand to kind of like mess around and see a few of the sites that she has been researching. And, um, and she's talking about like Cook and Darwin and all of the, you know, explorers or whatever. And in the course of her sort of bumming around New Zealand, she meets this man whose nickname is Seven, um, who is a Maori man. And he, she ends up, it's kind of unclear at first. Like, if I didn't know that they eventually got married, which is not a spoiler, like, this is nonfiction, there's no spoilers here. But, like, it, it, like she's, it's very uh, clean, is the word I want. Like, you don't know that they're hooking up or, like, are romantically involved until suddenly she le- she's like, and then we got married. And you're like, oh, okay, so you're not just friends. Got it. <laughs> um... But so she marries him, and the book, and then, like, you know, she, they don't tell anyone, and then eventually he meets her family, and she meets his, and it's just, a, it's an odd book, because it it intersperses sort of these personal anecdotes about what it's like for the two of them to be married. Um, She's from Boston, they kind of end up hopping around countries, like, they live in Australia for a while, they live in Boston for a while, are they going to go back to New Zealand? There's all these questions about, like, where do they fit as a couple uh, in the world? And then, on top of it, she is interspersing it with all all of these things that she knows because she was writing her, you know, thesis on the Pacific and the exploration of the Pacific and the relationships between the European invaders, as it were, and the original inhabitants of New Zealand, uh, which was very violent and complicated and was like a huge culture clash. So it's a like it's a weird mixed up kind of book that I find very interesting. Um, it's got this very scholarly perspective, but it's also personal because she's talking about her own life with her husband. Um, it's just a, it's, yeah, and I think it's very readable. She's good at telling stories. She's she's clearly just really super invested in her subject matter. And then there's all these asides about like silly things that she's like trying to decide is if this is like some, it, like some conflict with her husband about like where they should eat at night is like indicative of all of the differences between Maori and European peoples or if it's just like a marital thing. Um, So it's kind of a fun, weird, odd, fascinating read. Uh, So that is Come On Shore and We Will Kill You and Eat You All by Christina Thompson. All right, my second one is The Garden Party by Catherine Mansfield, which is a collection of short stories um, that was first published in, like, the 20s, I think. Um, Catherine Mansfield was a native New Zealander who moved to the UK, I'm pretty sure, for, like, health reasons. Um, But most of the stories in this collection, which there are 15, are set in New Zealand. Um, And it's a really, not fun, but, like, interesting time period. Like, the Edwardian period in New Zealand is not a thing I ever, like, thought to read about, but these stories are so good. Catherine Mansfield has, like, she writes with a scalpel. Like, nothing, not to say that nothing happens in these stories, but they're very, like, slice of life, as, you know, short stories tend to be. Like, one episode of somebody's life that, on the surface, seems to be not that interesting, but is actually, like, super, super heartbreaking. Um, Like, in one, I remember in one story about, like, a married couple that's growing apart, the husband goes off um, to town every week to, um, like, support his family and like work his job and make a lot of money to make his wife happy. And while he's gone, she's like collected this new and interesting collection of uh, friends who are like bohemians and very free spirited or whatever. Um, And so like, he's very earnestly trying to like make the thing work. And she's just like moving on with her life. Um, And he writes her this letter that's like very heartfelt and all about his feelings for her and how much he loves her. And she like reads it out loud to her new friends and they laugh at him. And like, that's the story. (laughs) And it's like, just really upsetting. And I don't know, kind of, Uh, right in the feels, you know, and they're all like that. Like they're all right in the feels. Um, I don't know how much a a book written, you know, in the twenties, no matter where it's set, will give you like a insight into the culture or society of it 
in 2016, but it's still, you know, there, you can see like the traces of the colonialism uh, in the stories and like the way that their society is structured, like New, Ze- New Zealand's um, kind of middle-class white people uh, society in the Edwardian period. Um, that structure is really fascinating. So I liked it from like that kind of historical perspective, but also the stories are just really, really good. Um, so that's The Garden Party by Catherine Mansfield. Okay. It's me. Um, okay, so oh, I've lost my thing. The next question is from uh, Maymuna, and she says, I have a long trip coming up that I'm taking with my girlfriends. It's been a tough year, and I want to get away and have an adventure. One of the places we're going to is Cairo in Egypt. If you could please recommend books to read in Egypt, either about the history or someone traveling, that would be great. I'm okay with fiction or nonfiction, but I don't want it to be serious, something lighthearted. Um, also, if you have lighthearted, funny books about traveling adventures, that would be a bonus as well. Okay. Oh, and she's leaving November 5th. Okay. So right under the wire. <laughs> um, so I'll go first. I, you know, <laughs> finding books about Egypt that are lighthearted is like not super easy. So, but I think I managed. I think I managed. Okay. Um, so my first pick for you is Death on the Nile, and it's by Agatha Christie, and it's my favorite Agatha Christie novel. Um, it's uh, Hercule, Hercule Poirot excuse me, mystery, and it takes place right before the Second World War. Um, and it's kind of a, a, a locked or like a closed room mystery because there, it takes place on a river steamer on uh, on the Nile. So Poro is there and there's like a collection of characters and a, a murder happens and then he has to figure out who on this boat, because like no one else could have gotten on or off the boat, um, committed the crime. And so the person who died, it's like there's there are two friends. One of them is like a super wealthy heiress. One of them is poor. And the heiress steals her poor friend's fiance and they get married. And then they are on this boat and the friend, as they've been like traveling for their honeymoon, their poor friend has been following them and like harassing them. Her heart is broken and she's like, um, you know, angry. (laughs) And so she follows them onto this boat that is now going cruising down the Nile in like 1936 or something. Um, And then um, one of the women, is it the woman or the guy? I can't remember. No, it's the wife. One of the, one of the women uh, is killed. And then you have to figure out, you know, who did it. The obvious suspects may be guilty, maybe not. Question mark. Um, But this thing of like, Poirot is just my favorite. He's like this very uh, uptight, like fastidious little dude who um, has these just like incisive things to say about people and like their characters and human nature. And so this isn't necessarily like... um, you're not going to learn a lot about Egypt since you're like stuck on a boat the whole time. But Agatha Christie herself was super interested in Egyptology. She actually wrote an entire murder mystery that's set in like ancient Egypt, um, which I is fun, but I, I didn't recommend it because it feels sort of weird. Like, I don't know, writing her writing like African characters kind of freaked me out a little bit. So I whatever. But if you're like curious about it, you can go check that out. Um, but this one is less scarily questionable or problematic um and it's just a lot of fun and i can't think of anything more lighthearted than like a a completely not gory cozy mystery from from agatha christie so that's death on the nile by agatha christie all right my first pick for you is actually just a fun travel book um because I never get to talk about Dervla Murphy, but you gave me an excuse. So <laughs> Dervla Murphy is this Irish woman who did a ton of traveling in a time when not a lot of women were traveling by themselves. Um, so, for example, she like crossed India on a bicycle by herself, the thing that she did. Uh, and I'm recommending to you Eight Feet in the Andes, which is the story of how she took her nine-year-old daughter, Rachel, and a mule uh, across the Andes um, for, like for 1,300 miles uh, from the border of Ecuador to Cusco, which was the ancient Incan capital, uh, with just like some backpacks. And they're like 10,000 feet elevation with a nine-year-old. <laughs> like, it's just, you're like, who is this person who thinks she's going to do this? And then they do it. It's great. Um, and Dervla has a really sort of quiet wit. Uh, she is telling her own story. She's very matter-of-fact about what she's doing. And um, she makes just all of these, like, really, like, off-to-the-side, wry little observations while also telling you, like, about the landscape and the people they meet and what it's like to travel with a mule and a nine-year-old through the Andes. <laughs> with it's, a mule and a nine-year-old. With a mule and a nine-year-old. Like, I cannot get over it. I read 
everything she had written. There was like a period of my life where I was either reading Thor Heyerdahl or Dervil Murphy, and that was it. Like those were the people I was reading. I went, I read my way through their whole catalogs. Um, I was just obsessed. And so I think this is a really just enjoyable travel memoir. Uh, and then the kind you don't see very often. So that is Eight Feet in the Andes by Dervla Murphy. Okay, my second one is a history. It's uh, Cleopatra by Stacey Schiff, who is a Pulitzer Prize-winning biographer. And this is really, um, in my mind, like the definitive Cleopatra biography. Obviously, what we think we know about Cleopatra is very shaped by, well, Shakespeare, oddly. Um, And then, you know, pop culture and Elizabeth Taylor and all of that. But none of that is really based in any sort of fact. Um, And I learned so much about Cleopatra reading this. um, And through that, I learned learned quite a bit about the history of the Egyptian dynasties, which I didn't really know much about. Um, uh, So for like, for example, Cleopatra was married twice, right? Um, Famously, she was involved with Julius Caesar and Mark Antony, but she never actually married either of those dudes. They were both married to other people, which I didn't realize before I read this. Um, But she, Cleopatra herself married twice, and each time she was married to one of her brothers, Mm -hmm. and she poisoned one of them. Yup. Which is like... Those Ptolemies, man, they were like the original Lannisters. (laughs) And I didn't realize that there was like a a link to Alexander the Great through the the Ptolemy line, so that was like all very new information. And I like a history degree. I feel like I should know this thing. Anyway, oh, and like the first one, her first husband, her first brother, she like waged this like awful civil war against. And they were teenagers. And this Uh was like the thing that she was doing. Um, And then, of course, she went on to get involved with Caesar and Mark Antony. She had four children with them and then became the wealthiest not just woman, but like the wealthiest monarch of the Mediterranean. Um, So she had a lot going on, (laughs) most of which we um, incorrectly interpret because you know we're i don't know whatever um like obsessed with making powerful women into sex objects and that wasn't really what was going on so anyway you will not just learn things about cleopatra you didn't know you will learn things about egyptian history that you may maybe didn't know um so that's cleopatra a life by stacy schiff can I, um, while I'm talking, I'll just do, you had yeah. an honorable mention, yeah, yeah, so yeah, I yeah, added no, one no. as well. Um, so my honorable mention I picked is, it's called The Q, it's by Basma Abdel Aziz, and it is not lighthearted at all, but if you get into a mood where you want to read something by an Egyptian author that isn't necessarily, like, funny or whatever, this is a really good one. It's a Kafka-esque, like, sci-fi dystopia that takes place in an unnamed Middle Eastern city that's very, um, like, Arab, it's, like, based in the Arab Spring. So I highly recommend it. It's very short. You can read it on the plane. That book is so good and so weird. Yes. <laughs> um, okay, so my second pick for you is Crocodile on the Sandbank by Elizabeth Peters, which is the first in the Amelia Peabody mysteries. Um, yeah, it is really hard to find, like, fun books about Egypt. Uh, but, so, I'm recommending this with a caveat. My recommendation is for, it's about a woman who is, like, 32, is a self-proclaimed spinster in, like, the 1880s. 80s um, and is uh, obsessed with Egyptology. So she decides to use her inheritance, she's like a wealthy, you know, spinster, uh, to go to Egypt and like do her archaeology, um, which is women aren't allowed to do, but she's going to do it anyway. And she befriends this young woman named Evelyn, and the two of them, like, travel together, and there's mummies and mysteries and a dashing archaeologist who thinks that, like, women shouldn't have adventures, but except that then, of course, there's a love story and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, and I read these a, a really long time ago. This is where the caveat comes in. Uh, before I was, like, hip to cultural sensitivity, and I cannot remember how the African characters are written about. So it, I, like, I don't remember. So I'm just saying, like, it might not be great. I'm not sure. It might not be woke. (laughs) It might, it's probably not woke. But these (laughs) books were written in the 70s. So, like, you know, take that as you will. Um, But they are certainly, like, it's, you know, woman on her own doing the thing in a time when woman is not supposed to do the thing. So, like, they got that going on for them. Uh, And they are just really, cozy mysteries are so much fun. So that's Crocodile on the Sandbank by Elizabeth Peters. And then my honorable mention is for Nagib Mahfouz's Cairo Trilogy. He is an amazing writer. um, Like, just a giant uh, in Arab literature. And I read him in college, and I was just so blown away. Um, and the Cairo trilogy obviously takes place in Cairo. It's three books because it's a trilogy. Boy, I'm, <laughs> I'm doing really good on this one. And um, it's about three generations of a family. And so um, 
It's about a Muslim family who live in a very specific neighborhood of Egypt, and um, and then each book follows, uh, you know, the first one, the second one follows the oldest son, and then the third one is about a daughter and her family. And so, um, and they're just, I mean, they are not light, but they are beautifully written and really fascinating and just a, a really amazing look into, like, just the lives of these characters. So that is the Cairo Trilogy by Nagib Mahfouz. Okay, before we move on, we're going to do our second sponsor. <clears throat> Excuse me. Our, our second sponsor is Swoon Reads, which is a publisher of the latest and greatest YA fiction that uses readers to help get the stories out there. So it's like a reader focused and reader powered publisher of YA, um, which is really neat. So um, you they're, they're accepting manuscripts right now, first of all, but more details about it. They're dedicated to like the undiscovered newest brightest in bookish YA talent. They do every genre of YA. So like if you've got an, an adventure, like a, a space opera, uh, some sort of epic fantasy, you've got a romance with all the feelings, it doesn't matter. If, if it's YA, any subgenre, they will publish it. And the community, the readers, are involved in every step of the publishing process. So readers uh, read and vote on manuscripts and help the, um, the writers kind of honed the book. Readers also help choose titles. They help vote on the final book cover. So you're really involved. Readers get to be involved in the publishing process in every step. Um, you get to, readers can rate books and share them, give your feedback. Um, writers can share their original manuscripts with uh, Swoon Reads and interact with the community to help really make your book, you know, what, it, what you want it to be and then to get it out there for other readers. So they're accepting manuscripts now. You can submit um, to them on their website, spoonreads.com. And readers, if you if you don't have a manuscript, you can go get involved in helping get those books out there. Um, again, any genre. So no matter what kind of young adults um, books you're into as a reader or a writer, you'll find something for, you'll find a place for your book and you'll find a community of uh, and stories to read um, there. So go check it out at swoonreads.com. Uh, you can submit a manuscript or start reading really excellent stories. So thank you for sponsoring the show. All right, next question is from Jamie. Uh, I recently read The Bronte Plot and really enjoyed its bookishness. I'm looking for other titles of books set in or around... Woo! <laughs> Let's try that again. I'm looking for other titles of books set in or around bookshops with an extra keen interest on books in the UK. All right. Um, I will say that my first pick for you is not actually books in the UK, but it's my favorite bookish book and I have to recommend it to you. So it is The King's English, Adventures in uh, Adventures of an Independent Bookseller by Betsy Burton. Uh, like, I should say that I used to work at this bookstore. Um, it's a bookstore called The King's English. It's in Salt Lake City, Utah. And it's an amazing bookstore. It's been there for over 30 years. Uh, and it's just, like, it's really cool. It's in an old house. So you, when you walk in, like, there's, like, the fiction room. It's literally a room full of fiction. And then there's the poetry room and, like, the mystery nook. And the kids' room is, like, used to be the garage but they remodeled it into this beautiful section uh, full of awesome kids' books. Um, so it's an amazing bookstore. And this book is sort of a memoir and sort of a behind-the-scenes look at what it's like to run an independent bookstore. And it is full of book lists. So, like, there are... Because one of the things that the King's English has done really well for since it opened has been to put these bookmarks together that are all, like, selections of books on a theme. So if you want to just explode your TBR list while you're also learning about what it's like to have a bookstore, this book is great. Um, and Burton is, has been involved in all of the like shop local movements, so she's got a very you know local community perspective on bookselling, and is just a really smart, incredible woman. So I think it's a really cool book to read if you like behind-the-scenes bookstore information. So that is The King's English by Betsy Burton. All right, my first one is The 13th Tale by Diane Setterfield, which has a really great kind of gothic uh, Jane Eyre, uh, well, really any of the Brontes kind of uh, feeling. And so uh, the main character's name is Margaret. She was raised in her father's like used antiquarian kind of bookshop. Um, she lives above it. And so one night she comes home and on her steps she finds a letter from Vita Winter, who's one of Britain's, you know, most well-loved and famous writers. Um, Vita is ill and she knows that she's um, not long for this world, so she wants to tell her life story to a biographer. And so she asks 
Margaret to kind of be the one to write the story. Um, Margaret it doesn't really know what to do with this. Like she's never met this woman. She doesn't. She hasn't read any of Miss Winter's books, so she doesn't understand why she's been selected or um, why she left a letter on her doorstep instead of just like calling like a normal, you know? Um, so there's like a lot of mysterious stuff happening here. And so she's wondering whether or not she wants to take the job. And then she, so she picks up a copy of one of Miss Winter's books. It's called 13 Tales of Change and Desperation. And while she's reading the story, she realizes there's only 12 stories in the book instead of 13, as the cover would imply. Um, so because she's intrigued and doesn't really know what to do with that information, she agrees to go meet this lady and act as her biographer. So she, like, goes to her, like, dark and stormy castle, and uh, Vita starts to tell her her story about her childhood growing up in Angelfield, which is now, like, this old, burnt-out, gnarly kind of English estate, and mysteries and confusion ensue. So it's got that... Actually, it's very... I've been recommending a lot of books that are Wilkie Collins-ish today, and it is very Wilkie Collins-ish, that, like, Victorian, dark and stormy, who knows what's going on here kind of thing. Um, but it's all centered around books and bookstores. So, yeah, so that's The Thirteenth Tale by Diane Satterfield. Yeah, that's... Uh, Satterfield, yeah. That's a good one. Um, okay, my second pick for you is a romance. Uh, it was one of the first romances I read as an adult, um, and you'll see quickly why I read it. It's called Cloudy with a Chance of Marriage <laughs> by Kieran Kramer, and it is about a woman named Jilly Jones who was in this kind of terrible marriage, um, but she has rid herself of her husband and is living in London, and and she her dream was to open a bookstore. So she does. She opens a bookshop um, and is, you know, trying to make that work. And then she has this neighbor who is a recently returned naval officer who, like, of course, immediately, like, they pick a fight about, like, I think he, like, fires a cannon at, like, an ungodly hour. Or maybe there's a lot of carousing. I can't remember. It's, like, a neighbor disturbance. Um, and uh, and and he is, like, who is this, like, blue-stocking woman who suddenly lives next to me? This is not what I am looking for. Um, and then, but then he, like, keeps coming back to the bookshop to, you know, talk to her, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the thing that I really love about this uh, romance series, it's the, it, this is actually the third in the series, but whatever, it doesn't matter, um, is that it is, the plot line is bananas. Like, on there, another pl- subplot that is going on is that, like, this street that she lives on that she has her shop in is, like, in danger of, like... I don't know, like, all of the businesses are in trouble, and it's always gloomy, and then, like, they, like, start this sort of neighborhood committee to improve the street, and one of the ways that they're going to improve it is that the apothecary is going to sell, like, love potions and, like, quote-unquote passion aids. (laughs) (laughs) And then there's, like, a weird, like, visit from the Prince Regent that happens at one point. It's just... It's so silly and fun and comedic and really enjoyable. And there is, you know, <clears throat> action that takes place in the bookshop. So um, that's fun, too. So so that's Cloudy with a Chance of Marriage by Kieran Kramer, who, P.S., was, like, in... Is it the FBI or the CIA? She was, what? like... A, yes, she was, like, a CIA... I think it was a CIA agent and, like, trained with Valerie Plame, like, on the farm. I think she was an analyst. It's crazy. Like, her personal backstory is nuts, uh, which I thought was just fascinating when I found that out. Okay, I'm done. Okay. <laughs> um, so my second one is nonfiction, and it's a lot of... Uh, it's kind of just, like, some kooky fun, and it's called Weird Things Customers Say in Bookstores. It's by Jen Campbell. And this came out when I was working in a bookstore, and I spent so much time, like, just cackling over this, like, the stuff that people submit. Because they're, they're, like, supposed to be all true, right? So the author took submissions um, from other booksellers across the world yeah. to include in the book. Um, and it started when, like, John Cleese on Twitter asked... Um, like his followers, what what's your pet peeve? And then Jen Campbell, who's the author, was like, well, it's when all of these things happen in this bookstore where I work, you know? Um, and then it just kind of turned into, I think, a Tumblr or something like that. Yep, and then yeah. eventually it became this book. Um, so if you've ever worked any kind of retail, you know people ask some, like, kooky stuff. Um, but the stuff that you get in bookstores is extra, extra hilarious because it's it's not just... 
variations on the theme of I'm looking for a book. I don't remember the title or the author, but the cover was blue. It's also like my children are climbing your bookshelves. That's cool, right? Like they're bolted to the wall. So, right. So like, it's fine. I might just let them do that. Um, no, <laughs> you know, and um, dress park. Why isn't it in the nonfiction section? Like the kind of stuff that people ask you. It's just like, sorry. <laughs> what, what did you just oh, say to yes. me? <laughs> um, so if you want to like, Get into the the weirdness of the day to day uh, running a bookstore or working in a bookstore and the stuff people say to you. Then this is a, a good place. So that's weird things customers say in bookshops by Jen Campbell. If we do it fast, okay, we'll just go fast. All right. So this is question six. It's from Casey. She says, uh, "I'm looking for ideas of a series of books to read. I love to read and I read quite a bit. The problem is I don't like looking for new books. I'd love to get started in a new series that could last a long time. I tend to read fairly widely, but I'm not a huge fan of sci-fi. For the right books, I would read pretty much any genre. Okay. So I will just keep going. Um, so my first pick for you: long series, the Flavia de Luce series by Alan Bradley. This is mysteries, um, kind of cozy mysteries that take place in immediately post World." War II in a small English countryside village. There are, as of this speaking, I guess, seven uh, books, or no, eight. Eight books in the series. Um, And the main character is an adorable, like, 10 or 11-year-old girl who is solving these murder mysteries. She's kind of a chemistry prodigy and solves all of them with reasoning and science. And she lives in this horribly old, dusty, drafty English estate with her father who has really bad PTSD and so is mostly absent and her sisters who hate her. And there's a really entertaining cast of secondary characters of, you know, English villagers who are just really great. Um, So they're not gory at all, very Agatha Christie cozy fun uh and once you get going you're kind of not going to want to stop and now it's a really good time of year to read them so that's the flavia de luce series by alan bradley the first one is called the sweetness at the bottom of the pie uh okay i'm just going to say real quick that if you're going to send this kind of question it would be so helpful to know some of your other favorite series um i have no idea what you like to read (laughs) so i'm just recommending some favorites to you and hopefully you will like them uh so i my first pick for you is the dublin murder squad uh series by tana french obviously i Amazing. Um, it is starts with In the Woods, which you might have heard of. I don't know. Uh, it's but it's a series of books that follow. They each follow a different character. So unlike a lot of mysteries that follow one detective over the course of a bunch of cases, uh, these pick up with a person who is a side character in one book will likely be the main character in the next book. Um, And I have, there are currently six. Yes, Trespasser just is coming out or came out recently. Um, books in the series, and, like, Tana French is just a great writer. The plots aren't always the most realistic. I've, like, had a lot of conversations about the likeness, which is the second book in the series, for, like, believability, but I will tell you that she is so good at character and setting. Uh, The interactions between the people are so well handled. She's so good at dialogue, and they're, they're very tense without being super violent or gory in any way. Like, they're much more psychological than that. Uh, and even more psychological than action-y, I guess I would say. Like, not a lot actually happens in the likeness for most of the book. Like, it's just people living in a house. But they're, the whole time you're trying to solve a murder, it's very intense. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, who doesn't like Town of French? So the first one is In the Woods, and uh, there are six books out currently. Okay, <clears throat> my second series uh, that I picked for you is a romance series. It's the Bridgerton series by Julia Quinn, and there are eight main books um, in the series, but she also wrote epilogues to each one. Um, so they're actually like 16. Um, and the epilogues are e-shorts or uh, e-novellas, uh, digital books. Um, so if you do get into the series, you got to look for those on, you know, on the internet. Um, but each book, each of the original eight books centers on one of the eight children in the Bridgerton family. Um, uh, eight children of the late Viscount Bridgerton. There are, I think, four brothers and four sisters. So each of the eight books centers on the relationship, the romantic relationship of one of the, you know, brothers or sisters. Um, You don't, like with most romance series, you don't necessarily have to read them in order, but there is a lot of... um, obviously since they're a family, like connection between both the main and secondary characters. So it is kind of helpful in this particular case if you read them in order. The epilogues, you do not have to read in order, but you can. Um, And they all take place, they're historicals, so they all take place in the early 1800s. Um, And they're kind of classics. I don't know. They're just like, they're very light. They're kind of heartwarming. Like they're not on the scale of like, 
you know, inspirational romance to like super hardcore erotica. They're kind of just in the middle. Like they're, they're, they're not super scandalous or, um, heavy on the heat, but they're also not entirely absent of it. Um, but they're mostly fun. Like they remind me of a lot of Jane Austen, uh, with a little more, you know, sex. <laughs> so, with a little more doing it. <laughs> with a little, a lot more. I mean, there's a lot more. <laughs> over the course of April. <laughs> um, but it's the same time period as Austen, and it's got, you know, romance of, uh, what do I say, comedy of manners kind of stuff going on. Um, so that's the Bridgerton series by Julia Quinn. All right, I'm throwing in a fantasy series in there because you said you'd read anything for the if it was a good series, and I think uh, this is a good series. It's the Codex Alera series by Jim Butcher, the first book of which is The Furies of Calderon. Uh, the reason I love this series is because Jim Butcher is clearly obsessed with the Romans and the Roman Empire and decided to write a fantasy version, basically, of that. <laughs> so the book picks up in a sort of settlement out on the edges of the uh, Alaran territory, I guess you would say. And uh, it's about a young boy named Tavi who ha- was supposed to bring in the sheep last night and didn't, and now he has to go and get them. And in the course of going to get the sheep with his uncle, they encounter uh, this this sort of lead scout of what appears to be an invasion by an outside peoples into their territory. And so um, they are trying to get word back to the capital, and there's a ton of political intrigue. The fantasy aspect is that in this world, people have access to furies, is what they're called. They're like nature spirits they're elemental so it's wind or fire or earth or water uh and they're these furies allow their person to sort of channel those powers so like if you have wind furies you can fly if you have earth furies you can move a lot of water or earth around if you have water furies you can heal people uh, among other things and some people have access to multiple Pretty much everybody has access to these except for Tavi, and it's nobody knows why he doesn't have any magic, so like he's considered sort of a freak um, by everybody outside of his family, as it were. Um, but there's a mystery around him, like who were his actual parents, because he's living with his aunt and his uncle, and there's just so much politicking, but I think Butcher balances that out really well with some side stories. There's a lot of subplots, there's a ton of characters, uh, there's a bunch of supernatural stuff that goes down, um, but the heart of it, it is like a political fantasy that's really rooted in its characters. So I think it makes for good reading. There's six books in the series, um, and they have a nice balance of being an oldie-time epic fantasy, but the gender relationships are, like, much better than they could be. So I appreciate that a lot. So that's the Codex Alaire series by Jim Butcher. And that's our show! Woo! Woohoo! Okay, so please go rate us on iTunes and leave a review. Uh, it makes the show easier to find for other people. You can find us on social media. I'm at I'm Amanda Nelson, and Jen is at Jen R- IRL, excuse me, Jen with two N's. Thank you so much to our sponsors for sponsoring the show, and we will talk to you all next week. Bye.